You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, everyone. Uh, Very good afternoon if you are joining us from US and a very good evening if you are joining us in South Asia. My name is Adnan Rafiq and I am the country director for United States Institute of Peace in Pakistan. Welcome to our webinar on the coronavirus crisis in Pakistan, a provincial perspective. Uh, USIP is uh, a national nonpartisan and independent institution founded by US Congress and dedicated to work towards a world without violent conflict. The Institute strives to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict around the world through its research and analysis, programs, and convening events such as these. In Pakistan, USIP has maintained a field office since 2013 and works with a range of stakeholders within civil society and the government institutions to reduce violent conflict and, uh, and, and develop greater social cohesion and uh, peace. So as we know, COVID-19 is, is a major ongoing crisis, not just in Pakistan, but globally as well. So we're looking at different countries and different contexts in terms of the response and the developing situation. And a couple of weeks ago, we uh, organized another webinar as well to look at more sort of at the national level, how COVID-19 is uh, being responded to in Pakistan. And you can uh, find its recording at the USIP's YouTube channel. Uh, And today uh, we'll be looking at more uh, the sub-national perspective because since uh, 18th amendment in 2010, health, education, policing, all of these are provincial subjects. So the provinces are at the forefront of responding to COVID-19. So we have today with us eminent um, panelists uh, from all parts of Pakistan to provide us an overview of the on-ground situation in different parts of the country. And then we'll go on to discuss various emerging themes from from this uh, analysis. Please feel free to join in the discussion through the comments section on our YouTube uh, channel. You can type in your questions throughout uh, the proceedings and towards the end of the uh, end of the webinar, we'll be we'll be bringing in your questions and we'll be putting in putting these to our panelists. So I would uh, introduce our uh, distinguished uh, panel uh, for today. We have with us uh, Noshin Anwar. She is professor at IBA uh, based in Karachi, and she also leads uh, Karachi Urban Lab. We have with us Umair Javed, who is assistant professor at LUMS uh, University in Lahore. Uh, Fasi Zaka hails from Khyber Pakhtunha province. He is an independent analyst and public policy expert. He is also a noted columnist and anchor person. And we have from Koita, Blochistan, Rafiullah Kakar. He is also an independent public uh, policy analyst and is also advising uh, government of Blochistan on strategic planning and reforms. So uh, without much ado, I'll, I'll uh, start with, with Rafiullah Kakar from, uh, from Koita, uh, who himself contracted uh, coronavirus and uh, is recovering from, from COVID-19. So, Rafi, please inform us about your health. How are you feeling now? And and your analysis of the situation in Blochistan, please. Thank you, Adnan and US Happy for organizing this, uh, what uh, is likely to be a very useful panel discussion. Um, and thank you for the personal inquiry. I, uh, I'm recovering well and I'm almost uh, almost done with it. Uh, luckily for me, I didn't show any sort of uh, major symptoms. The symptoms are only mild, but uh, um, uh, I'm uh, I'm recovering. So thank you for that. And um, coming to your uh, question about uh, coronavirus and, and uh, the response of the provincial governments, uh, I would sort of just um, quickly. Uh, 
quickly talk about the steps or the measures taken by the government of Balochistan and sort of the quick overall the impact of this crisis on uh, economy and life in Balochistan. Uh, there are two very distinguishing features of the economy in Balochistan or the life in Balochistan. <clears throat> A, the share of informal economy in Balochistan uh, is very huge. A, a, a significantly large share of the economy is informal and undocumented. And secondly, uh, most of the economy uh, is dependent, particularly the services sector, is dependent on border trade. So it is dependent on the borders remaining open. Uh, when we when we were trying to estimate the impact of the COVID-19 on Balochistan and uh, the economy and its people, uh, we were investigating and uh, analyzing multiple pathways, but primarily we realized that the services sector and the urban economy were uh, the biggest hits. And uh, within the services sector, uh, again in Balochistan, it's uh, primarily the wholesale and retail sector and transportation sectors, uh, subsectors. These were uh, severely affected. And uh, since they are so uh, closely tied with the border trade and the borders with Afghanistan and Iran, uh, both, both those borders are closed for both movement of goods and movement of people, um, except for occasional uh, and temporary relaxations. Um, so the the, the services sector has particularly been hit uh, severely and we have estimated that the expected GDP forecast for Balochistan uh, before the corona crisis was around uh, 2% and now it is likely to fall somewhere between minus 2% and uh, minus 6% uh, in terms of uh, um, the amount uh, in terms of the amount that mm, that will be lost it will be somewhere between 60 billion to 90 billion rupees. And um, there is, this is just a, a ballpark figure of the losses that the economy has, uh, uh, is likely to sustain during the crisis. But the impact on the informal economy, uh, on the bazaars and on the wholesale sector, that is uh, even bigger, the number of people falling into poverty has increased significantly. Um, so this is a quick sort of overview of the impact of the crisis on Balochistan. The government has taken a number of measures um, similar to measures taken by other provinces from restrictions on movement of people to restriction on movement of goods, closure of markets and commercial centers, uh, closure of uh, borders, ban on intercity transport, etc. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, uh, the implementation of these measures has not been at its best. And um, the uh, cooperation of citizens and their understanding of this crisis uh, is also something that needs serious uh, attention. And uh, in addition to this, other sort of uh, immediate health-related interventions have also been announced. Uh, relief packages have been announced. Uh, um, I don't know if we can go into the detail of those, but I'll just stop with this quick summary. And then if you had any sort of follow-up question, I'll leave that to you. So uh, thanks, Rafi, for this. We'll go around to every panelist uh, to get an overview for each province, and then we can discuss some of the emerging themes. So next, we go to Noshin, uh, because Sindh has, has taken an early position uh, at the onset of this uh, outbreak. And so, Noshin, if you can please take us through the response and the uh, situation. So thank you, Adnan, and it's a privilege to be a part of this uh, conversation. Uh, so yes, so Sindh went uh, into lockdown quite early, even though that was a point in time in mid-March when federal government still appeared to be muddling over a decision on uh, whether or not uh, the lockdown should be countrywide. Uh, country and I think since decision to go into lockdown was largely triggered by the discovery of uh, patients who had been infected by the virus, uh, specifically those who had come in from Iran via Tahran after performing pilgrimage. And, and it was shortly thereafter, after this discovery uh, that the chief minister, I think, triggered by this particular issue, uh, decided to uh, take these steps. And the lockdown has been uh, much like Balochistan, uh, sort of uh, uh, all over. And, 
And the government has been taking certain steps that uh, Sindh government has been taking certain steps that should be applauded. For instance, uh, it set up the coronavirus uh, emergency care and uh, cure center with isolation wards. This was established at the labor colony flats in Sakhar. Uh, the establishment of health desks at Jinnah International Airport in Karachi for screening passengers. And then also establishing in April, in mid-April, the first uh, drive-through COVID-19 testing facility uh, in, in Karachi. And, uh, and Sindh also appears to be the most affected in terms of the virus. I think the numbers are now approximately around 13,000 cases to date. This is just slightly ahead of, uh, ahead of Punjab. And, uh, and the reasons behind this, I mean, we could discuss them later if they are of, uh, of, of value, that perhaps Sindh is performing more tests, but it's not, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, but there are certain caveats to all of this, of course. Uh, all of these uh, actions uh, on the part of the Sindh government have also been happening in the context of much criticism that is pouring in from opposition parties, uh, specifically for that the chief minister has made these decisions about the lockdown without taking adequate measures, for instance, taking into consideration uh, or coordinating with the institutions of um, the institutions of parties like the Jamaat-e-Islami, and, uh, and, you know, there are allegations of insufficient or inefficient distribution as far as welfare relief measures are concerned. So these tensions um, between the Sindh government, political parties at the center in terms of how emergency policies should be handled are ongoing. But there are the, these tensions also uh, scale down quite a bit, right? So I know we're going to be coming to a point where we might be discussing the whole provincial uh, government, uh, federal government, center province dynamic, but I just want to sort of flag uh, a, a very important dimension to this, that these tensions also scale down to the local government district levels in terms of the role of, of union councillors and so forth. And uh, some of these, the sources of tension that have emerged recently um, are about the uh, COVID-19 Emergency Relief Ordinance 2020. And this contains many provisos about offering concessions to the poor. For instance, a 20% reduction in school fees, decrease in house rents, mandatory, that it should be made mandatory for the private sector to not lay off employees, uh, concessions, especially for the payment of electricity and gas bills. However, the Sindh governor, who is a PTI representative, uh, has declared that these kinds of provisos and the, or these kinds of concessions especially those concerning uh, you know, uh, payments of electricity and gas bills, that the provincial government does not have the decision-making capacity or the authority to offer these kinds of concessions to the poor, and that these kinds of decisions come under the domain of the federal government. So, uh, so, these, so this particular um, ordinance has become of late in the last 10 days or so, a particular point of contention vis-a-vis uh, you know, -vis how uh, policies concerning the handling of the coronavirus and relief measures should be should be handled. So, uh, so I'll stop right there, and perhaps we can come back to these issues uh, later on as we approach more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nosheen and Umair. How how does it look like in Punjab? Uh, thank you, Adnan. Uh, it's uh, this somewhat similar to what we've been hearing so far. I think uh, Punjab uh, has. Um, you know, even though it wasn't one of the early decision makers as far as imposing uh, the lockdown was concerned or restricting particular types of activities were concerned, uh, they eventually somewhat belatedly sort of uh, imposed uh, various kinds of restrictions on economic activity. Uh, I think those uh, have largely been done in coordination with the federal government because there is obviously the same party uh, in power in both at both the center and in Punjab. Uh, so there is, I think, greater degree of cohesion in terms of, uh, or coherence, if not cohesion, in terms of some of the decision making that is being done. Um, I think uh, a couple of other things that are worthy of, of, of sort of flagging here is that Punjab is also, uh, from, uh, quite, from quite early on, uh, has maintained the position that uh, the virus cannot be curtailed through the imposition of, uh, of lockdowns, or that lockdowns will pose other dilemmas. Uh, that pose public policy concerns for, for the Punjab government, in particular uh, dilemmas posed to livelihoods and social protection. Um, and for that purpose, they've, uh, they've mobilized, uh, uh, you know, outside resources uh, to, to come up with various strategies on how they can counter this. And uh, they've called in 
uh, obviously, and they've been working in coordination with a number of think tanks, including the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan, SERP, which is based in Lahore. Uh, they've been able to bring in expertise uh, from academics based at uh, in, in foreign universities, mostly in the US. Uh, Asim Ijaz Khwaja, who's a professor of development at Harvard, has been advising the Punjab government. Uh, there have been others. Uh, Saad Umar, who's a public health specialist at Yale, uh, he's been working with them as well. And they've uh, they've come up with uh, a plan. Now, the implementation of that plan has left much to be desired. Uh, I think there is um, uh, there are uh, there are significant concerns about the capacity of the government to impose even what they're calling a smart lockdown, which means that they will isolate particular instances uh, within large urban centers and then shut them off uh, for periods still. Uh, obviously, the transmission rate uh, goes down. Uh, we haven't seen uh, that happening, uh, you know, to any uh, sort of a great extent. Uh, testing capacity has been ramped up uh, in recent uh, in recent weeks. Uh, it's still uh, below what uh, Sindh is currently doing, uh, but Punjab is testing on average about 305 uh, per million, uh, 305 tests per million population on a daily uh, basis. So I think there is um, uh, there are certain things that they are. Where Punjab has actually, I think, done uh, slightly better, and, and obviously the, the case for evaluating uh, those interventions will come later on, is having a very clear-cut idea of what needs to be done as far as the social protection and economic uh, impact of the virus is concerned. Uh, so they've uh, developed two or three strategy documents. Uh, they've undertaken certain budgetary decisions, uh, including reallocation of resources from uh, various um, various development uh, Various development agendas that were that no longer seem as viable. Uh, they've obviously, you know, made more money available to the health department for the purchase of uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, they've also, in an in an effort to stimulate uh, economic activity, uh, you know, introduced various tax concessions up to the tune of about 18 billion rupees uh, through various uh, through through cutting back on various kinds of provincial taxes. And uh, they've also developed a, a strategy which they're calling Rise Punjab. Uh, which aims to deal with both not just the immediate fallout of the virus from a social protection and a livelihood perspective, but also in the early recovery and then the long-term economic rebuilding stage. So I think there's a lot of interesting uh, thinking happening around it, but I think the, the pressing question mark, which I think is something that uh, probably is afflicting uh, you know, all governments at every level in Pakistan, is the question mark of state capacity. Can the state actually deliver on uh, the public health measures that are required to actually uh, curtail the virus? Uh, and can the state actually target uh, the particular populations that are greatest in, in terms of uh, their need, especially given the consequences of uh, you know, the economic restrictions that have been imposed uh, as, as, a, as a result of the virus itself? Thanks, Umay. Thanks. And uh, Fasi, uh, let's uh, hear from you about the situation in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Sure. Um, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa is about 35 million people. And as of now, the virus incidence, there's been around 5,000 total cases, of which 3,600 are still active. We've had around uh, 300 deaths. Um, in addition, it was one of the provinces that acted fairly early. I think, like Dr. Nasheen said, the Sin Chief Minister, Murad Ali Shah, he's become recognized as one of the heroes of the crisis so far by taking a lead. I think also in KP, the health minister, uh, Temur Chakra has also developed a similar profile. And that's partly because trying to be early and communicating uh, quite actively on the scale of the threat and what needs to be done. Um, the province declared a state of emergency, health emergency from the 3rd of Feb. Um, we had in Pakistan the first cases of coronavirus in the 26th of Feb. The first actual deaths from the coronavirus happened in KP. There were two. Uh, both people had come back from the Middle East. And uh, early on in the 11th of March, they started closing all educational institutions, banned all public events, including marriages. And then some of the things that Rafi has been talking about, these are also some of the similar economic effects because of this kind of lockdown that was imposed and it's had a fairly similar effect on KP as well. Um, in terms of health, one of the things that they've been concentrating on is trying to bring together the response that would be it. So they've established, uh, you know, isolation wards across the province for about two and a thousand, two and a half thousand beds. Um, they've done high dependency units. They've got backup facilities in all the districts. 
they've procured about a billion rupees worth of equipment. So that includes PPEs, medications, all the things that were actually short within the existing health structure. And they've also been doing a process of locums, which is temporary contracts to increase the amount of healthcare staff, doctors to deal with this crisis. So far in KP, uh, there's some evidence that uh, there's uh, debts are correlating to the intensity of the lockdown. Uh, so now that measures have been significantly reduced, a lot has depended on how people actually uh, cooperate or take measures on their own. So it's fairly open how things will change over the next month or two. I think this is also the situation nationally. Um, so far, in terms of deaths, there's also a very significant gender component. Uh, the majority are men, 80%, 20% are women. And in terms of the comorbidities of cases, 70% had comorbidities. Uh, and the comorbidities were mainly cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Um, dedicated hospital beds at the moment are at 40% capacity. So there's still room in order to go, but intensive care units are pretty much closing in the gap of what they can provide. And in terms of non-COVID beds, there's still 30, 40% that could potentially be changed in case the situation uh, gets moved drastically. Um, but as of now, the situation is uh, somewhat contained. The government of KP is also supplementing with their own program uh, as part of the SAS. Uh, national program, which is uh, helping people at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder deal with the loss of livelihoods and incomes. Um, so anyhow, that's a basic encapsulation of what's been happening in KP so far. Thanks so much, uh, Fasi. And uh, let me also remind everyone who's who's joined us online that you can uh, you, you can write down your questions in the YouTube chat box and uh, we'll come to uh, your questions uh, uh, in a bit. Uh, let me take on uh, something that Umair mentioned, uh, where, where he said that, you know, the efforts uh, that the government has taken is to curtail the virus. So, I mean, my question is that, do we have clarity on the ultimate policy objective? You know, what, what is government trying to uh, achieve? Is it uh, South Korea or New Zealand style elimination of virus from the country? Or is it just to flatten the curve and so that the hospitals are not overwhelmed and lives can be saved through medical uh, attention? Uh, or are, are we moving towards herd immunity, essentially, uh, as, as the lockdowns ease and so on? And I think linked to this uh, is the question around this debate on lives versus livelihood, where we've already seen uh, a difference of opinion between the prime minister uh, himself, who's focused on, on the devastating effect on economy and what it might mean for the deprived sections of the society and the government in sin perhaps who's been more sort of uh, emphasized on saving lives uh, due to the health risk. So Umair, if, if I can uh, direct this towards you and then anyone from the panel can add to it uh, if they want. Uh, yeah, thanks, Adan. I think I'll just say two things on this. The first is that today, uh, the head of the National Disaster Management Authority, uh, which is Pakistan's apex body uh, that's currently coordinating um, the response to the coronavirus crisis, uh, made a statement where he very explicitly said that uh, we will have to bear with the virus till uh, a vaccine is developed or uh, till such time that cases start to decline. Um, uh, he, uh, the term herd immunity is obviously not one that, uh, that is being used explicitly in most policy conversations. Uh, but I think the way that the conversation has been framed in uh, by the federal government as well as by uh, the provincial government in Punjab, uh, and again, I'm not uh, saying that this is something that is unique to Pakistan. It's part of a larger policy conversation that we hear uh, coming from uh, you know both uh, countries in, in other parts of the global south and and academics and policymakers based elsewhere, which is that the lives versus livelihood trade-off is actually very real, and that there are a number of uh, nascent uh, you know data sets that show that the restrictions placed on economic activity uh, pose real uh, livelihood and uh, mortality risks uh, to uh, obviously people, especially those who work within uh, the informal sector, uh, which constitute large parts of the economy uh, for countries like Pakistan. So I think those uh, that particular framing has driven the conversation in Pakistan. I think that's one thing. The other thing is that there is a uh, sort of a consistent um, a refrain, uh, so to speak, 
uh, in the policy conversation that somehow Pakistan is not as badly affected by the virus uh, as other countries have been. And this is uh, largely uh, based on uh, obviously the mortality rate uh, and the fatality count that, that Pakistan currently has. Uh, I think Rafi just uh, uh, also sort of pointed uh, something to this effect that this is this could very well be a function of the fact that we're under testing and that we're not following proper protocols as far as testing fatalities uh, that are happening at this time period uh, are concerned. But but the larger point is that the argument that this is being used as an argument uh, to uh, both push through the larger sort of uh, policy perspective that Pakistan cannot completely clamp down on economic activity, both because of a lack of uh, state capacity to do so, and uh, in that the state cannot coercively induce these behavioral shifts that are required for people to stay home so that they can flatten the curve, and because the livelihood risks that uh, are ultimately that emerge from imposing these restrictions uh, have their own sort of uh, you know long-term uh, negative consequences, and the consequences that the state cannot fill in the welfare requirements uh, that would obviously pose uh, that would be posed given uh, the imposition of large-scale restrictions. So I think these two things collectively are, uh, are where we can sort of glean uh, uh, what, what the Pakistan uh, sort of government is currently aiming for as far as its overall vision for response is concerned. Thanks, uh, Umair. So um, another key aspect uh, that has uh, been observed in the government's response at both federal and provincial level has been this uh, reinvigorated debate on the 18th amendment and the distribution of power and resources between the center and the provinces. Um, the new uh, newly appointed information minister of Pakistan uh, said a few days ago that um, um, 18th amendment is a hurdle uh, in terms of evolving a national strategy on COVID-19. And the president yesterday has constituted the 10th national finance um, commission to uh, to review the distribution of resources between the center and the province so if i if i can go to rafi on this uh, rafi you've looked at uh, federalism in pakistan extensively written on this topic as well how do you see the state of federation in pakistan and the effects of uh, covid-19 uh, crisis on it uh, thank you, Adnan. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, flag that as per my understanding, there are two aspects to this debate about the 18th Amendment and the uh, provincial capacities. Uh, it is the debate, there are many aspects to this debate and the, the public side of the debate is that it is about weak provincial capacity and that probably the 18th Amendment has gone a bit too far and it has probably weakened the Federation. Uh, and similar sort of uh, reservations. Uh, in my understanding, the truth is that it is uh, it is not about these issues. It is uh, really and actually uh, about the issue of uh, finance. Uh, it's a fiscal problem, uh, and that fiscal problem is that the the resources that are available to the federal government as a result of the seventh NFC award and the and the eighteenth seventh NFC award and the eighteenth amendment. Uh, have left less space for the federal government to sort of uh, play around with the budget. And uh, within that, in particular, I think it's about the, the defense budget uh, from uh, the share of the defense budget in the share of the federal government sort of expenditure. So it's really about that. But the issue is being extrapolated to other uh, dimensions as well. Um, so uh, if we investigate these, I'll uh, quickly talk about both aspects about has the 18th Amendment actually gone too far uh, in terms of uh, the strength or weakening, uh, weakening of the Federation and to uh, do the provinces have the capacity to uh, implement the powers that have been devolved to them. So first starting with the, uh, with the impact on the Federation or the strength of Federation, there is a lot of comparative politics literature available on the subject. Uh, the evidence is mixed if you look at it uh, casually, but uh, when one goes into the detail of that academic literature, it is very clear that uh, federalism or decentralized federalism has been an effective tool in managing ethnic diversity and conflict in ethnically divided countries. Uh, the only evidence against decentralization or federalism is by scholars who have studied post-communist regimes uh, where the institution of federalism coexisted with an authoritarian form of government. So basically, these were the countries uh, 
where uh, decentralized, where federal model or federal model on uh, ethnic diversity was imposed through co through a very brutal authoritarian form of government. Uh, in other words, federalism has been a very effective tool in managing diversity in democratic countries. Uh, Professor Bermio from the University of Oxford has uh, conducted a study where she has studied uh, separatist violent movements in more than uh, 30 to 40 countries across the world. And her, uh, one of her biggest findings is that no violent separatist movement has ever succeeded in a federal democracy. So the idea that uh, decentralized federalism is likely to weaken the federation, unfortunately, the, uh, there is not much academic evidence to support it. The only evidence that is out there is in countries where federalism was imposed through a top-down authoritarian model. Uh, so that's the, 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 the federation versus the provinces and the centripetal versus the centrifugal forces. In terms of capacity, as I said, it is the issue, the real issue is actually about the fiscal side. I think uh, if you look at the capacity of the provinces, I personally uh, working here with the government of Balochistan and some other policy documents for the federal government as well, uh, I have... Um, I see this debate with the two sort of uh, two angles. First is that uh, have provinces demonstrated an increased prioritization of key social sectors after these were devolved to them after the 18th Amendment? Uh, B, uh, uh, it's not only a question of will and intent, but also uh, do they have the capacity to sort of execute these powers? In terms of intent and policy recognition, I think there is a, uh, there is a, uh, significant, there is sufficient evidence that uh, nearly all provinces have increased allocation to healthcare and education. After the 18th Amendment, the education budget in all provinces has hovered around 20% of the total budget with uh, uh, some variations. Um, uh, coming to the capacity, again, I do admit that there are provincial, there are constraints on provincial capacity, there are limitations. But I think in order to judge a province's capacity uh, after the 18th Amendment, we will have to compare it with the situation before the 18th Amendment. And I do not think, I'd, I haven't come across evidence where one can confidently claim that the provinces or the federal government was doing a better job than the provinces are doing after the 18th Amendment. I think the provinces are doing a much better job despite all sort of limitations. So COVID in Balochistan's case, and Balochistan is probably the weakest in terms of capacity, but even Balochistan is doing a better job than the federal government. Uh, I would like to highlight too, GST on services, Sin Punjab, understandably, they increased revenue collection significantly uh, after the GST on services was devolved to the provinces. Uh, but even Balochistan, over the, since the past three years, Balochistan has been collecting GST on services itself. And the revenue collection has increased significantly compared to when the FBR was collecting the same sort of uh, uh, revenue. In terms of COVID, uh, uh, you start, let's start with Taftan. The, the disaster that, that happened at Taftan, um, this was the managing Taftan was primarily a responsibility of the federal government. Unfortunately, they were nowhere. And, and uh, Balochistan government didn't do a very good job either but they did something they despite their capacity constraints despite lim limitations of resources uh, i think it was the balochistan government that kind of saved the rest of pakistan from an abrupt sort of explosion of this virus by quarantining uh, around six to seven thousand people transporting them to their respective provinces uh, i'm not saying that they did it perfectly but they, they did something and the federal government was nowhere to be seen. Uh, and uh, then moving to many other sort of COVID related measures, uh, I, I personally don't think that the federal government is doing a better job than, than any of the provinces, uh, let alone Balochistan or Sindh for that matter. Okay, uh, thanks, uh, uh, Rafi. And we can come back to some of these uh, points uh, during the question and answer session as well. Uh, let's move to another key uh, area. Uh, as we know, Pakistan has faced um, large amount of violent uh, conflict over the last uh, 20 years. And, uh, you know, uh, as a result of uh, extremism, terrorism, and other 
sort of social and uh, political fault lines that exist in the country along sectarian, ethnic, uh, class, and other, other sort of lines. And uh, it's, it's, it's important to keep an eye on, on, on the conflict landscape as well, uh, where we have some reports coming in from, let's say, the newly merged districts or Balochistan of some militant activity we saw you know, in Afghanistan as well uh, a few days ago. Uh, the, the, the massive terrorist attack uh, that happened. So if I can go to uh, FASI for, for this, FASI has looked at the conflict landscape in the country for, for, for a long time. And FASI, what's your assessment of the, uh, you know, the, the conflict landscape in Pakistan and, uh, and, and the effect of COVID-19 and some of the economic uh, implications it may have uh, on, on, the, on, on the conflict dynamics? So um, in terms, it's, it's interesting to see, for example, I do know um, the Ministry of Health, uh, the Ministry of Human Rights recently set up a helpline for gender-based violence, but more than half the calls were actually uh, for asking for financial help. We've seen um, nationally representative surveys by both Gallup and Ipsos and the amount of which people have felt the economic pain within that is significantly overwhelming. There's another helpline also on GBV. And again, around 70% of the calls aren't for the purpose that they're meant. They're all asking for economic help. So it's a significant issue. People are feeling the pinch. Uh, I divide this into two categories. One is what would be the overall effect on, say, crime in the country, what would be the effect uh, given how law enforcement will respond. So we've seen, uh, this is not really that strong evidence, but from newspaper reports, uh, post the period when the government lifted restrictions on construction, slightly opened up the public space, there's been an increase in uh, mixed evidence of increased uh, street crime in Karachi which could be crimes of opportunity or they could be driven by economic need. Um, the other big issue is that are our security forces uh, primed to deliver in terms of possibly raging infections within the police force or other security apparatus where they will have to operate on reduced numbers? So the UK has already been modeling at 20% people being at home. How do you work out on that? That's things that still needs to be worked out for Pakistan, given that our total caseload of infections is low and that they might suddenly increase come June, July. Um, again, in Sindh, for example, there's uh, more than 100 policemen who've already got the coronavirus. Uh, there's a big nexus in Pakistan between drugs and terrorism, for example. Um, and it's anticipated that this whole situation will probably help evolve some degree of how this operates, including much more than you having to go out to receive these things, you'll have more drop at home. There's a increased boom uh, of online provision as well that's being anticipated. In terms of actual, uh, how does it affect our conflict? So we've had incidents in Balochistan, we've got incidents in uh, the tribal areas but they do not seem to be either uh, you know, acts of terror based on the opportunity that the coronavirus pandemic has provided. They are falling in line with a trajectory that has been there for six to nine months anyway. We've seen these uptake of incidents both in the tribal areas and it's been happening as well. And in Balochistan, of course, recently it was a response to two students uh, who were killed. Um, and uh, so in terms of like where this is going, the real issue is that there will be a period where we will find that if the worst outcome projections come true, the greatest difficulty for Pakistan is that if we have writing in the streets when people will have to be denied care or ICUs are filled and there's a perception of state failure, uh, then there'll be a crisis, this public health crisis will become a crisis of public order, it'll become one of state legitimacy. And I think that's something that may be remote, but it should be something that needs to be factored in in terms of the response to something like this. Thanks, thanks, Fasi. And um, 
earlier on, you mentioned uh, the helpline set up by the um, Ministry of Human Rights on gender-based violence and the drop uh, in terms of the calls coming in for uh, help uh, on the gender-based violence. But we also see a contradictory trend where the number of incidents on gender-based uh, violence being reported have actually shot up. So this is something that has happened elsewhere as well, where the number of calls coming in uh, for help have, have reduced, but the incidents uh, actually have, have increased. So if I, if I can go to uh, Nosheen for, uh, for this, uh, if uh, Nosheen, you've worked on the gender-based violence, uh, if you can please uh, provide an assessment of, of what it means for gender relations in Pakistan and domestic violence and so on, uh, as there are emerging reports and concerns in this regard. Thank you for that question, Adnan. Uh, much of my work uh, with respect to gender-based violence actually intersects with issues of infrastructure and the built environment. I am an urban planner after all. So uh, what I'd like to underscore in the context of uh, this present crisis is that, uh, and this I think pertains not only to countries like Pakistan and the global south, uh, but also uh, to what is happening in the global north also, because gender-based violence has uh, reports are actually coming out similarly for, uh, for cities across the global north as well. And I think that the issue of uh, self-isolation, uh, quarantine under the present circumstances, uh, brings up the issue of confinement in very important ways, that when uh, people are confined, uh, especially you know, in, in terms of certain types of class backgrounds or in terms of certain cultural factors, uh, how these might intersect to, uh, to exacerbate um, uh, domestic violence situations, for instance. So if I might use, for example, the case of uh, large metropolises or urban centres like Karachi, uh, although gender violence, I mean, I, I would like to sort of make it very clear that gender violence is something that cuts across classes and ethnicities and, and so forth, but that perhaps uh, when we're looking at communities that are marginalised or, or that are income poor and are uh, sort of stuck in situations of uh, trying to manage themselves in a built environment where confinement is particularly, uh, ex you know, exacerbated by very, very small um, rooms or very small spaces where the possibility to, to separate yourself in, uh, you know, in, in larger rooms or, or uh, you know, in, in a garden or in a veranda or just find a place of, of isolation when one, where one is on, on one's own, these possibilities become uh, much narrower. These, or these possibilities or these opportunities simply don't exist. So people are thrust together uh, in situations where being inside actually becomes more dangerous than being able to come outside. So this question of freedom uh, for women especially, uh, and even I think for, uh, for children who are also perhaps on the receiving end of violence, I mean, we often forget uh, that the question of domestic violence cuts across both women and and children uh, of, of both genders, the young young boys and young girls as well. That issues of confi confinement under uh, you know the present conditions of of quarantine and isolation might very well heighten uh, the issue of domestic violence, but not pertaining only to women, but also perhaps to children. And and I think that going forward, um, you know, what are the kinds of uh, sort of dynamics that we are going to be seeing uh, coming out of this uh, emergent situation in terms of the psychological violence that might be meted out on, uh, on, on those who are the receiving end of, of this particular form of violence under these particular conditions of confinement. This is something that perhaps uh, needs to be addressed or looked at or researched going forward because these are not, uh, these, are, these are complex issues and these complex, and these issues also dovetail with questions of the built environment, with urban planning issues, and, and these are highly gendered issues as well. So how we plan our cities and, uh, you know, how we address issues of, uh, you know, of housing and care and maintenance and all of this ultimately also becomes a very important part of uh, what we are possibly witnessing right now in terms of reports of, uh, of gender violence going up uh, in, in specific urban centers or in specific neighborhoods and so on and so forth. Thank, uh, thanks, uh, Nosheen, for this. Um, we can now go to uh, some of the questions that have been uh, posted uh, by, by the viewers. 
and uh, one of them is is about the uh, particular cultural characteristics that we have uh, in Pakistan and in South Asia in general and uh, how do they affect uh, the response to COVID-19 kind of dynamics. I mean, uh, some of the factors Noshin mentioned in terms of the, uh, you know, the population density and so on, but of course there are others as well. So uh, if I can initially go to Rafi uh, for, for, uh, for, for a reply, but please uh, feel free to add, uh, any, any panelist can, can add to it. Uh, in terms of the peculiar uh, cultural, social, and other characteristics that makes, and, and there is evidence from the Spanish flu of 1918 that uh, South Asia, subcontinent in particular, was badly affected uh, by that pandemic. Rafi? Adnan, uh, your voice broke down. I couldn't hear your question. Can you please repeat? Yeah, so uh, the question is about the cultural and social characteristics that we have uh, in Pakistan and <clears throat> South Asia in general, which may make it more difficult to deal with COVID-19. Okay. Uh, yes, I think uh, certain sort of cultural norms uh, and traditions, uh, our culture, our style of living, uh, they are a significant hurdle in the containment of the virus. Uh, in particularly, I would like to identify joint family system. Uh, since my family personally went through the, this experience, I would just like to highlight a few important points. We, uh, for example, we are 29 people in one family. We live in the same building, in the same house. And uh, the problem with this kind of family systems in a pandemic situation is that uh, if one person in the family gets it, if one person in the family is infected, uh, uh, it is almost uh, always sure that the entire family will be infected uh, because uh, usually in such joint families, uh, the, there, there is no concept of an individual room for each individual in the family. It's usually the kids sharing one single room, like uh, four to five, three to five kids sharing one single room. Uh, and then sort of, we all eat together. We, we dine together, we sit together, we uh, drink together. Um, so I think that's, uh, uh, that becomes a challenge. A, uh, both the spread of the virus, it easily gets uh, spread to many other people. And B, uh, because this virus is stealthier in nature, the incubation period uh, takes five or six days when the sim uh, before the symptoms are uh, before the symptoms appear. Uh, during that period, it is already uh, uh, it uh, in our case it had already been uh, spread to the most of the family members. And when you realize that you the family members are infected with the virus uh, in a joint family system, it is almost impossible to arrange quarantine facilities. How do you quarantine thirty people? Uh, it's it's not possible. Uh, so you need spare accommodation facilities with attached uh, um, toilet facilities, and this this becomes a huge problem. In our case, we didn't have these facilities, and we uh, come from a relatively sort of middle class background here in the in the in the context of Quetta. But imagine this for uh, people uh, other than the low middle class, the lower classes. They also have similar family sizes and uh, in case they get infected, uh, it is almost impossible for them to arrange accommodation space. It is almost impossible for them to arrange uh, to implement isolation and quarantine. These, uh, the, the basic protocols of uh, uh, COVID-19. So, and similarly, the communitarian culture overall, where you sit together, you dine together, you meet people. Uh, so uh, another interesting thing that I observed in our context, in our cases, uh, I have been sort of investiga investigating the origin of uh, um, the spread of this virus and how it came to our family. It turned out it was a social occasion. It was Fatiha. Uh, in both cases, there were two people who we think uh, uh, were the source of sort of uh, entry of this virus into our family. Uh, one was my mother. She had... Uh, uh, her mother had died. She had gone to uh, her mother's uh, funeral, Fatiha, and everything. She stayed there for a week. 
that was where we, you have a huge congregation, people come and go. And the other case was where one of my sister-in-laws had gone to uh, to look after, to inquire after the health of her mother who was severely ill and sick. Uh, uh, she stayed with her mother for like uh, a week or 10 days. And her mother lives along the uh, Pakistan-Afghanistan border, Chaman, in, in Chaman town. So these were both social occasions which were responsible for the spread of this virus. And then when it came to the family, uh, by the time we realized nearly the entire family had been infected and those who were not infected, um, we did manage uh, eventually some sort of quarantine and isolation facilities for them. But uh, I think 90% uh, people do not have that luxury and privilege to arrange those facilities uh, in a setting like this. Thanks, Rafi, and also for sharing uh, the personal experience uh, and, and, and what your family went through. We do wish uh, all of your family members speedy recovery. Um, so, so given all these dynamics, if I can go to Fassi uh, for another uh, question that has been posted uh, with regards to the awareness and the communication uh, from the state. Uh, how would you assess, uh, you know, in, in such a crisis situation, the messaging that has, uh, has, has, has come from the federal government and the provincial government and, and the rest of the stakeholders? What's your assessment in terms of the effectiveness of raising awareness uh, on, on COVID-19 in Pakistan? Um, I think that... Um... Pakistan was also subject to something that happened internationally is that in any public health crisis, one of the problems is that people tend to believe the first thing that they hear. And this is a fairly established principle that's been um, observed around the world in terms of public behavior. And because this was not well understood in the beginning, there was a lot of messaging that wasn't very concrete that obviously went down. But I think what was mostly uh, very clear in Pakistan's case is that once the provinces got on board with the program, realized the scale of what was happening, their messaging uh, by and large was fairly straightforward, fairly good. I think Sindh is a great example of that. KP is an example of that. I think Punjab was problematic in the beginning, but overall it has also done very well in this respect. I think our real problem is the mixed messaging that kept coming out from the federal government who at one point saw health and the economy as a binary. And even though there, were, uh, there was a lockdown that was mandated, that was, came from the federal government, there was some talking it down that kept happening. So even right before an extension of the lockdown, it seemed if we were just to follow what the federal government was saying, it seemed like a case was being made to lift it. But then there was an announcement of an extension uh, for a week, 10 days. and. So I think this is uh, where we've been relatively weak. Um, the other on just a technical issue is that a lot of the messaging that's gone out is very clinical also. So when we look at instruments like television, radio and all that, it's about hand washing, it's about social distancing, that's fine. But after a while, people tend to zone that out. So we've also seen Pakistan has a really good innovation is that if you call someone, uh, COVID messages are read out to you. But when people have been polled, they haven't heard those in full or they ignore them entirely around 50% or maybe even more. And that's partly because of the static nature of the messaging. You, the brain tends to help you by zoning those out. So I think uh, more needs to be done in terms of showing it why people need to care. You have to frame it in terms of that maybe you might survive it, but you'll get somebody infected who you care about because those levers are very important in public communications. And uh, right now, the other thing is that, ironically, uh, most of it has been done primarily by earned media, which is press conferences. The problem with press conferences is there's a lot of political polarization going across. So sometimes the messaging gets caught out by what's more newsworthy, which is what is the relationship of antagonism between the province, for example. Uh, the other is that a lot of it's done digitally. There are problems of access that go that way. So putting more money behind things like television, where we know at least everyone in Pakistan watches two hours of it every day, where there's no access to digital, 90% of the people receive the signals, uh, radio. Um, and the polling also suggests, I think what's really interesting in the polling in Pakistan is that people are by and large happy with the response. Uh, 
of how the governments handled it, and this includes the provincial and the federal, but a very high percentage of the people also believe the threat is exaggerated. And they're also reporting a high number of people still going to communal prayer at mosques. They're not following those advices. So what it shows is that you've got people holding contradictory opinions, which means they don't have a very firm opinion on this crisis as of now. And that is still an area that uh, I think Pakistan can do more on, because it's important to, if we're gonna lift the lockdown, if we can't sustain the economic damage, then the most important lever will be getting people to take precautions on their own. And they have to really believe and imbibe themselves with that. Sure. So, uh, Nosheen, uh, if you would like to add uh, something, please do go ahead. Let, but let me pose two very short questions to you as well. Uh, first is around the communal tensions. Uh, you know, initially we saw a bit of antagonism against the Shia uh, uh, pilgrims coming back to Pakistan. Uh, how, how, how has that situation unfolded? And second, there is a perception that perhaps mortality rate in Pakistan is uh, lower than others, what could possibly, possibly, what's your assessment of that as well, please? Okay, thank you, Adnan. Uh, I just um, uh, sort of, I think that the, um, the comments that Zaki just made were, were all extremely important in terms of uh, messages and communication, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things that I find quite remarkable is that we haven't talked about in the in the broader terrain of governance dynamics. This conversation has remained quite restricted to the center provincial uh, question. Uh, where is local government in all of this, right? So it's almost as if the governance dynamic when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis stops at the province and somehow nothing cascades downwards. And I, I speak from the vantage point of, uh, of urban Sindh, and I'm using Karachi as a paradigmatic case, which is Pakistan's largest metropolis. According to the 2017 census, 16 million, but in actual fact, probably much more than that, 20 million, uh, given the manner in which the census was conduct conducted. Uh, so uh, sort of what I'm seeing happening, and I mean, I'm, I'm in lockdown myself, I'm, I'm under self-isolation, so uh, I, I, cannot, I don't have data at my fingertips, nor do I have, uh, the capacity to empirically observe what is happening, for instance, in uh, the, the, you know, the wide variety of, of poor settlements or the informal settlements in which over 60% of the city's population resides. Uh, but based on my informants, based on the people that I have built relationships with in various communities across Karachi, uh, I've been hearing all kinds of things, right? So the, the sort of the urban sensorium through which uh, academics like me get access to certain kinds of data is becoming quite important now. And part of what's coming through this sensorium are stories about how, well, people simply don't have access to government at the present moment. So who can access a deputy commissioner? Who can access a district commissioner, right? Uh, it's that the only person that they could possibly access is a union councillor. So where are the union councillors? So when it comes to issues of communication, when it comes to issues of relief measures, when it comes to issues of, of accessibility, of, of, of gaining access to uh, the right kind of information, or just being abreast of what is happening in a time of emergency or crisis. And people who live you know, in these neighborhoods actually are always living in a permanent state of crisis, right? Whether it has to do with degraded infrastructures or water scarcity or load shedding or uh, uh, the crisis of tenure and the crisis of affordability, Informality is a day-to-day -day condition of both uh, of, of living and sustenance and survival and all of that. So then COVID-19 presents itself, it sort of, you know, attaches itself as a form of a disaster that is linked with many, many other crises that keep on building up, you know, to sort of like a massive tsunami. So for, for people on ground, what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, from places like Orangi, Orangi Town and uh, parts of Machar Colony and others that, you know, we, we, we would like to know where our union councillor representatives are. And I think that this is, this is an incredibly urgent issue that, that need, people need to, talking, start need to, to talking about, policy makers need to address in terms of, well, okay, so the center provincial dynamic is a very important one. The 18th Amendment is a very important issue. But what about lo local governments, governance systems in places like urban Sindh? I can't speak for Punjab. I can't speak entirely for Balochistan either. Because, uh, you know, issues of welfare measures, 
uh, reaching out to uh, you know to uh, to to populations that have never actually even been counted or cannot be counted because the question of opacity or the challenge of opacity is a huge one. The state can see, but there are so many, many things that the state cannot see or is not willing to see. But you have a dynamic, you have a situation in which uh, local government systems uh, do or can address these kinds of issues. And then added to that, that are complications of, of data, right? I mean, what kind of data do governments have available at their fingertips? I know in SIN, the, the data issue is an absolutely critical issue. There isn't enough data available. I mean, you have the healthcare department that is still generating healthcare data to figure out virus hotspots in Karachi based on, on, uh, on information that was uh, made available to them when under the General Parvez Musharraf era, Karachi was declared into one district. And then after 2008, it was turned into six districts, whereas the, you know, the, the healthcare department in Sindh is working off of documents and data and information that, that is old. So uh, when it gives uh, DCs information on, on viral hotspots in certain UCs, you know, the DC is trying to figure out what these UCs are and suddenly you know, they realize that, wait a minute, this is old data. You know, we, we don't have enough information available. We don't even have enough data on at the ward level. So I think that in a moment of disaster, in a moment of emergency or crisis, the question of data becomes an incredibly important one. Is it up to date? How is this data being generated? Uh, how is it being mapped, right? All of this. So I think, again, this comes down to the level of the molecular. And I think that the molecular is not a part of our conversation right now. So if we keep on insisting that the buck stops at the level of the province, when it comes to handling these, uh, you know, these crises, I think that we're missing out on a much, much bigger picture, you know, which is which, which also needs to be addressed. So, uh, so I, I'll, I'll just stop there. Although I know I haven't entirely addressed those other two questions that you also raised, but I don't want to take up too much time. Sure. No, I hope uh, our moderator will be able to uh, paste responses to those two questions in the chat. Um, let me uh, just uh, take one final question uh, and, and pose it to uh, Umer about the civil-military relations. As we know, Pakistan has had a troubled history of civil-military relations. However, at this uh, critical juncture, at this point in time, Umer, how do you see civil-military relationship in dealing with COVID-19 in Pakistan? Uh, yeah, thanks for that. I think this is, um, I think in, in times of crisis, we've actually seen, usually seen uh, fairly extensive degrees of institutional coordination between civilian actors and, and military actors in Pakistan's history, whether it was in earthquake relief where we actually were under a military regime or whether it was the flood response in 2010 or in terms of sort of resettling internally displaced people uh, during the uh, counterinsurgency campaigns uh, from the last decade. I think one of the things that is quite apparent is that uh, under the current dispensation, uh, which is sort of borders on what we would classify as a hybrid regime, the military has significant leeway in terms of deciding uh, sort of decision making on particular domains and not just in sort of historically in domains that it has historically had a say over such as internal security or foreign policy and, and obviously uh, national strategy, but also in things like uh, the uh, disbursement of fiscal resources um, on issues of uh, coordination and communication. Uh, all of those things, those are also where the military has uh, certainly enhanced its uh, footprint uh, as far as the current government is concerned. Uh, I think a couple of things are quite indicative that the government is more than willing to, uh, the civilian government is more than willing to let the military play that part. Uh, there have been occasional sort of bouts of tension between uh, obviously different actors, uh, but by and large, the military has, been play, has played a, a significant role in coordinating the response uh, at the provincial level. I'll give you just one example from Punjab. Uh, so the committee that was uh, formed uh, to advise the public health department, uh, the primary and secondary healthcare department, on a, on a healthcare-based response to uh, corona also included representation uh, from obviously the, the senior most uh, military uh, officer uh, currently within the province that's the commander of the uh, four corps uh, based out of Lahore. Uh, the military has also uh, taken an active interest in, in uh, ensuring that uh, food supply uh, uh, and so food supply chains are, are retained and, and obviously don't suffer from corona-related consequences. Uh, they're currently uh, sort of coordinating the effort for wheat procurement in the province of Punjab, uh, and that too has come out quite clearly. So I think um, these are, uh, again, sort of very clear-cut examples of institutional coordination uh, that we see. Uh, however, these have long-term consequences uh, for the st structure of decision-making in the country. And most importantly, to go back to something that, uh, you know, Rafi had flagged earlier, 
these have consequences for the uh, fiscal architecture of the country as well as the military is a you know federally government funded body uh, it is a central government institution uh, if there is to be any revision uh, on in terms of uh, the amount of resources available to the to the center that would be something that obviously the military has a keen interest in and stake in uh, so i think those are some of the uh, sort of the issues but as far as uh, sort of institutional coordination is concerned i think what we currently see is uh, largely uh, sort of non conflictual um and and sort of fairly uh, fairly coherent in terms of what what's actually happening by and large this obviously would change depending on the particular provincial context uh, that you're looking at thanks so much umair for very pertinent points and uh, i'm afraid we are running out of time so i'd just like to conclude by saying that covid-19 is a global challenge it's a it's a global pandemic and um it can either force people incentivize people to come together uh, coordinate with each other help each other in finding the common challenge or it can exasperate the existing fault lines fault lines among different communities and stakeholders and so on and we hope that it's the former rather than the latter and that is where usip also sees its role in terms of facilitating different stakeholders to come together and evolve a common strategy in fighting uh, fighting this battle uh, i would like to thank all of you for your time and for your valid uh, comments i would like to thank the viewers for joining us today and the usip staff members who put all of this together uh, let's hope for the best uh, let's hope that everyone stays safe and healthy and please uh, do tune in to our youtube channel and 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 other pages will be doing this more regularly not just uh, on pakistan but also analyzing other contexts around the world thank you very much and uh, hope to see you again soon thank you for listening to this event if you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts visit usip.org/podcasts